Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Tech Central. Hi there, this is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. So many ways of getting the show however you got us today. Remember, you can also download us directly from our website at techcentral.ie. You can use a smartphone podcast app. There's tons of them. iTunes, of course. Or you can listen to us on the radio every Friday on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Joining me as always is Editor-in-Chief of Tech Central, Niall Kitson. Niall, I suppose the first thing to check is, are you alive? Uh, yes, um, despite Facebook's best efforts for <laughs> what? How many How many people were actually affected by yeah, that? I, it was two million. Number of two people. million people were affected. And I was kind of thinking, that's a colossal number. When, when you think there's like a billion people on Facebook, you kind of go, ah, drop in the ocean. Well, I, is it true that Mark Zuckerberg was one of those people who was memorialised? He was. He most certainly was. <laughs> Embarrassing. <laughs> pretty, pretty. Yeah, a lot of red faces all around there. But, you know, they, they got a, you can't even say they're testing a new feature. Like they just screwed up and all of a sudden made X million people look like they were dead. No, Wonderful. Not good. Not good. Listen, later on in the program today, we have got the most amazing interview for you. And after that, we're going to be asking a question for a competition because we have a stunning prize this week. What is the prize? We have a, a really nice Sony Xperia X smartphone to give away. Uh, I've been playing around with it a little bit earlier. It's, it's, it's great. You know, it feels very nice in the hand. Good call quality. Um, it's a solid, it's a solid piece of machinery and it would make a great prize. Or if you're in such a way inclined, Christmas is coming, and if you don't like it, you can always gift it. Well, there you go. I was looking at it in the Vodafone store uh, at the weekend because I knew we were going to be giving it away, and you're right, yeah, and it's a good big uh, screen on it because I like the big screens and stuff like that as well. So Sony Xperia X up for grabs on the show, uh, and we've got a question for you after the interview, which, of course, will be related to the actual interview itself because that's how things work. But listen, uh, the one story we wanted to chat about uh, before we get into the interview this week is the state of the nation when it comes to broadband. How is is Ireland doing and how are various places in Ireland doing? Oh, goodness. Well, on, on the surface, we're doing OK, um, which sort of flies in the face of logic to a certain extent, because as, as we know, the EU has set a goal of having a 30 megabit per section per second uh, connection available to everyone or, you know, access to as a, as opposed to, you mm. know, actually in the door. Um uh, connection by 2020 and uh, initially it was like okay this is you know fiber will save us all kind of a thing um, but you know it was market forces was driving the rollout of broadband the government said look it's okay we got this we're going to have another national broadband plan there'll be 275 million euro plowed into this uh, didn't happen hasn't happened doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon especially with the public sector uh, wage negotiations ongoing because we know that money is going to have to come from somewhere and they're going to look at all the essential services and go, well, we can't, we got to keep that, we got to keep that, we got to keep that. Guess what we can put on the long finger? Broadband. I'm, I'm convinced that's what's going to happen. We're not going to, the, the latest out of it is we're going to find out who's going to start getting money uh, next year. Um, believe it when we see it territory. I mean, it's been put off uh, twice already. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But anyway, switcher.ie, the broadband uh, and general utility uh, comparison, uh, price comparison website, came up with uh, a report 
um, going through the average broadband speeds of the nation. Uh, nationally, the average broadband speed is 20, a little over 23 megs, which uh, makes you go, oh, OK, there's there's not that far to go until we're um, actually at the EU target. But of course, this is an average uh, across the country. And if you look at the starting speeds um, that are available, I think Air's starting package is like 70 megs. Uh, Virgin Media are going up to 340 megs. Some places have gigabit connections. And when you look at sort of 30 megs, that you makes you wonder what is actually drawing down that average right so um uh, to give you an idea of the the highs and lows of the market again these are averages um so you know your package may vary kind of a thing the best broadband by postcode uh, in ireland is to be had in uh, drimna where the average speed is 72 uh, 72.15 megs go dublin 12 um the worst is uh, Ligon and County Longford, where the average broad- broadband speed is a paltry 1.98 megabits per oh second. Oh, my so God. Oh, my God. And that's the average. You know, a lot of people aren't getting even that good. So that gives you an example of the disparity in the market at the moment that, yeah, we have this national average, but it's really being dragged down by people that are so badly served that it is actually ridiculous in this day and age. I think it must be a case, though, because it's always, and I would imagine that it's the same the world over, that urban areas are the easiest to cable and to get fibre in and, and to, to do good service. So it's not surprising that Dublin is, is way, way, way ahead. Um, but when you are talking about, you know, quite rural places that are 30, 40, 50 miles from maybe the nearest exchange or whatever happens to be, it gets a lot more expensive to provide the same level of service uh, to those people. So the economics kind of aren't there. Um, but, oh, my God, that uh, one... One meg is, I was actually visiting a, a friend of mine recently who's had a terrible internet connection and only I did a speed test on it and they had one meg uh, up and one meg down. And it really reminded me of my days with a modem when you'd have a 14.4k mm. modem. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. But do, do you want to, like the interesting thing about the broadband landscape in Ireland at the moment is that the, it's, you know, Dublin is done. Plenty of competition, market saturation. Mm. You want fibre, you've pretty much got it. You can do whatever you want. Mm. The emerging markets are in sort of the larger towns, the Dundalks, the Drogheda's, the Sligo's, the Donegal towns. You know, this is where the new markets are. And this is where the likes of Syro are going in, uh, who straight off the bat have excellent infrastructure options because it's all run through the power lines. Mm. And you can get gigabit broadband in, in, in not Dublin, Dusty. Yes. But How refreshing right. is that? Oh, you know? I, I think it's fantastic. And I think a lot of people forget, you know, Dublin is the capital city and it's big and a quarter of the population live there. And that's fantastic. But you've got to remember three quarters of the population don't live in Dublin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and guess where the country's second best broadband is right now? If it's not Dublin, uh, I'll hazard a guess. Cork? No. Cork is way down the list, believe it or not. But I think Cork, uh, out of the 26 counties, Cork came 14th. But I think, I think it's a victim to the size of the catchment area because you've got Cork City, but Cork is is quite large as well. Mm. Like it's not, it's not a city the way way Dublin is. Mm. So um, the second best broadband in the country is to be found in Waterford with an average speed of 27.9 megabits. Um, followed by Galway on 20.24 megabits. And and I think that's quite interesting because you do have Galway City, but there's an awful lot of uh, rural areas in Galway Mm. as well. Um, Followed by uh, Limerick with 19.12 megabits. Uh, As you said, Cork in 14th and Kilkenny in 21st position at 12.88 megabits. 
it, it goes to show you, as you say, the disparity between Dublin and the rest of the country when the fastest speed is in Dublin at 75 odd. All right. And then Waterford is second with 25. <laughs> I mean, that's, I know. That's I know. a big difference as it is. You know, it, it, it really shows up um, the state of the market at the mm. moment. But, you know, if, if there is good news, you know, it's that the likes of Syro their rollout is happening mm. and they do have the wherewithal to do it. But a lot of the competitors are kicking back and going, wait till we see where government is willing to spend the money. Well, I would say I absolutely love the idea of CSIRO because they have the infrastructure. This is, you know, for, for people who've forgotten, uh, the ESB with the infrastructure where they send the internet down the power lines, which go into every single home in the country and teamed up with Vodafone to do all the uh, uh, the internet end of things. I think it's a brilliant proposition and I really, really would like to see them push out their product uh, a lot faster and would certainly bump up those speeds uh, overall. Listen, we'll leave it there for now. Niall, thanks for bringing us up to date. <laughs> This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. When you think of the big breakthroughs in science and engineering today, you think of academic journals and websites and universities with huge funding grants. But it wasn't always the case. Some of the greatest inventors like Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla weren't academics. They were men of great ideas, sometimes working all on their own. And just like we expect the great discoveries to be reported in academic journals or magazines like New Scientists or Popular Mechanics, the way people read about science has changed over the years as well. One man who's devoted a lot of time to studying the history of science writing is Professor Philip Bowler from Queen's University in Belfast. And during the week, he spoke with Niall on the history of technology and at the... Uh, one man who has devoted a lot of time to studying the history of science writing is Professor Philip Bowler from Queen's University in Belfast. And he spoke with Niall at the History of Technology and Medicine Conference at DCU last week. If you like old pulp magazines, listen to this. You're in for a treat. I'm out in DCU today for the conference on the history of science, technology and medicine. And specifically, I'm speaking to P Professor Peter Bowler of Queen's University, Belfast, a, a very eminent and highly decorated academic. So I'm going I'm to list off some of his uh, accreditation so far. He's from the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics at Queen's University. He is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, a corresponding member for the Académie Internationale d'Histoire des Sciences, uh, a former president of the British Society for the History of Science and a member of the Royal Irish Academy. And I could go on and on and on, but uh, we'll hold it there. And uh, Professor Bowler has been speaking today about kind of the, the history of science writing during the 20th century and the interesting overlap we have between the amateur and the professional science writer and, you know, what people talked about when they talked about science to a, to a certain extent. But one of the things that really struck me is there is kind of a, a buccaneering sense of the, the old scientist, if you will, because you, you, your interest kind of on a timeline starts with H.G. Wells, who was very much high adventure, high concept um, and that serves as a really good ground zero for what we now know as sort of high concept science fiction uh, now but you highlighted this character of A.M. Lowe who I thought was very interesting and this isn't your typical academic scientist this pretty much is a guy that, that walked out of a H.G. Wells novel was he? Well, to the extent that H.G. Uh, uh, Wells and a lot of people of his period still thought of science as done 
by the lone amateur. I mean, think of uh, the time machine, which is invented by a, a, an isolated individual. It's, this is not big science as we know it uh, today, although big science was coming into existence then. Uh, and I think we have a, a kind of tension running through this period between the way science is developing through uh, departments in university and government and so on, the bigger and bigger research projects needing more and more money, and uh, still a sense that uh, interesting and important work can be done by lone individuals who have some scientific expertise but may not have formal qualifications and who work on their own and yet are still able to come up with uh, interesting uh, and valuable in, uh, inventions which may have to be developed by, by industry and so on, but, but they have the idea, and that's the advantage of the patent. Uh, and A.M. And Lowe was, in fact, the president of the Institute of Patentees, and he's very much on the side of the, the lone inventor. He sees himself as one such uh, and encourages other people to be involved, including women, uh, and he's very keen to see uh, women I inventing things that will give them an equal uh, role in society. Uh, and he makes a point that if we're going to give women what they really want, we'd be better off to let them invent it for themselves. They know what they want, not what men think they ought to have. Uh, so Lowe is a representative of that older um, way of, of doing science and invention who is still active in part because he's an active writer. He, he's a, a writer of books. He writes dozens and dozens of books. He writes books speculating about the future development of science, which is the particular topic I'm interested in uh, at the moment. He edits, uh, well, he's originally a science um, uh, correspondent for, later editor editor of uh, the major British uh, popular science magazine in the interwar years called Armchair Scientist. Uh, and he, he writes in that every month, uh, uh, letting you know what's going on in science, uh, predicting what advantages you'll get from it, and predicting the future, uh, what uh, future developments might bring, very often focusing uh, not just on the the, the big inventions, aeroplanes, televisions, uh, going into space and so on, but also on very practical things like uh, uh, better electrical gadgets or, around the household uh, and, and how they will uh, give advantages to us. He's also very realistic, uh, and I mentioned the example of, of the mobile phone. I mean, he was particularly interested in radio. He realised that if you put the radio combined with the telephone, you get the mobile telephone. Um, and he predicted that they would be coming in, uh, and he also predicted that there'd be a nuisance uh, uh, on, 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 on trains and buses because of everybody uh, telling their wife when they were coming home for dinner or their girlfriend what they were going to do, uh, and the general babble and so on. So he's got a kind of uh, everyman's approach to this, which is... Um, perhaps a bit more down-to-earth than the H.G. Wells, because uh, when Wells uh, writes about this, uh, you have his uh, uh, The Sleeper Awake, set in this great future metropolis. You have his book, The Shape of Things to Come, which then becomes a, a major uh, movie, which is... Uh, a, projecting on a very big scale an enormous future war which virtually destroys civilization, uh, <clears throat> But then... 
the the aviators are the saviors of, of, of society. They are the one group of people who retain technical expertise. They build a new civilization which takes over the world, and it's a rationally ordered civilization. So in Wells, you've got not only the speculation about the um, about the technical developments that will come, but the way they can be used. And he's in particularly concerned to have science and rational thinking applied to society and government in a way that they certainly are not at the moment, which is why we're going to have the big war. Um, of course, for other people uh, on the other side of, uh, of the coin, um, they're concerned, and this is, this is reflected actually in the movie, where the artist... Uh, uh, the, Lucy, I think his name is, um, uh, is protesting against the plan to send um, uh, man and woman into space uh, because he sees it as, as, as it is, it's science gone mad, it's science taking over our, our control of our lives. Well, if you think about Aldous Huxley and the Brave New World, that's exactly what those literary people, people whose concerns are for traditional moral values and, and human nature and so on, they see this... Uh, technological development as something that's going to lead to dehumanization uh, and so you have a tension between uh, Wells and Lowe who in their very different ways are projecting the potential for future uh, development admittedly in Wells's case via a slight hiccup of a global war but those who think the global war is going to end civilization or if we don't get that, we're going to get dehumanisation as all this scientific technology takes control of our lives and tells us how we must live. There is that uh, interesting um, development of when a new technology comes along, what, what the hell do you do with it? And how, how does that ripple outwards in time? So uh, there's a wonderful um, societal conversation that happens in science fiction that I don't, it really is unique to the genre that something comes along and then you try and prognosticate the, the ripples in time there afterwards. Again, you mentioned the mobile phone. Down the line, you reckon, okay, you can see from the start this, this is going to be trouble. Um, which technologies do you think have been uh, not quite nailed, but you know, have been foreseen and also their effects accurately predicted so again we we started with the mobile phone but uh, to take uh, an example maybe in aviation or something like that uh, were the initial predictions um spot on in both what we're what we've seen but also how they are affecting us or was it a case of one was very right and the other was very wrong well, it's very much a mixed bag there. Um, and with aviation, um, obviously it's been talked about before it was actually achieved in the Wright brothers and, and so on. Um, but from the start, when it began to appear as a real possibility, uh, you've got the people who think it's going to be a great boon because it's a wonderful way of transportation. If you want to get from London to Paris, an aeroplane or would get you there a lot more conveniently than a train and a boat and another train. Um, but there are also those, and Wells is one of them, who from the very start realised that the darn things can carry bombs uh, and uh, we are no longer an island uh, and the con- people from the continent can, can come over and drop bombs on us, possibly containing poison gas, germs or, or what else. And Wells also thought of an atomic bomb long before it was actually invented. So you've got people from the start... 
realising this is a technology that can be used for good or ill, uh, and in a sense, the what you you have in the popular media, the, the magazines, newspapers, movies, are people from both sides of the of the equation trying to make their point. Uh, and so uh, you, you could open the newspaper and on one page you'd have the, the latest Schneider Cup speed trials for aeroplanes and how wonderful that's going to, to, to be if we can apply it to aeroplanes that everybody else can, everybody, ordinary people can travel in. And another page you'll have some, a politician warming, warning the bomber will always get through and, and we're we going to be gassed in our beds uh, in the future. I think that speaks to the very special relationship science has with science publications and not just not just with the journals but the, the magazines that land on the shelves where sort of the discussion of the possible combined with sort of what is actually being developed at the moment. Uh, there's a very interesting mix of content there also. There, there has always been sort of the pulpy stories surrounded by the serious non-fiction articles. Do you think that the two... I, I guess to say, does one sweeten the pill, in other words? Is that part of the attraction um, that, you know, young kids could sit down and read hard, non, non-fiction scientific pieces? Or were they there largely for credibility written by, I shudder to say, hacks, but certainly non-scientists? I think that, that uh, in the period I'm dealing with, there's a good deal of interpenetration between the science fiction and, and the popular science writers. And in fact, you know, quite often they're written by the same people. As I mentioned, Wells does both. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov did both. A.M. Lowe wrote a science fiction story and got it published in you know, serial form in the, in his, the magazine he, he edited. Uh, and uh, Hugo Gernsback, the American um, publisher of pulp science fiction magazines, starts out publishing popular science magazines and including science fiction in the popular science magazines. Then when he starts publishing pulp science fiction magazines, they all have popular science uh, articles in them explaining the latest developments and trying to keep the reader uh, up to date with what's, uh, what's going on. So I think there's a, a very close uh, interpenetration there um, between the, 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 the fiction uh, and, the, uh, and the popular science. And indeed, some of the uh, non-fictional presentations about the future will include the odd bit of fiction to give, so that to give the reader an, an, an imaginary picture of what it will be like to come back to London in 20, uh, 2050 AD. You'll, you'll tell a little story in a chapter uh, to, to try and give them a more down-to-earth feel of what it would, would be like. So I think you've got a, a group of people, uh, uh, generally the ones who are quite enthusiastic about science, who, who, who can work in both of these uh, genres uh, and who you are in a sense using them both for the, the, the same purpose. I mean, obviously, you're quite right, you've got hack writers who will. Uh, we had just uh, talk I've just heard mentions a, a guy who would cheerfully write you the same story and it would be six shooters and stagecoaches or it would be ray guns and, and spaceships, but the story would be identical. And that's pretty, uh, you know, it is very much ha- hack work. Whereas the, the more serious people want to. to to think about um, what science will do and what it would the science what the science fiction writer in a sense is doing is trying to imagine what would it be like to live in that world and, and can we um, 
make that more exciting by imagining uh, you know an adventure taking place within it but it's an adventure which couldn't take place in the wild west there'd be something different about it because going out into space is going to offer uh, new opportunities uh, in a way that, that, that you couldn't have in a conventional Western or, or detective story. So I think there is a, a, a purpose there for exploring what science can offer uh, that's you know, parallel to the, 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 the popular science writer saying, well, you know, we've got aeroplanes now, what will it be like when we've got them going 500 miles an hour? Mm. In, in, 10 or 15 years' time. One of the writers you're uh, particularly interested in is Isaac Asimov, and I think he's a wonderful example of a writer that managed to do both um, while actually enhancing his credibility uh, while doing so. Um, He's he's got fairly um, long and interesting uh, interest in relation uh, with the pulps as well. Do you find that, or do you think that... uh, Engaging with the pulps, reading the pulps wasn't necessarily a bad thing, that it was actually a, a very good primer for looking at science as a, a legitimate career, maybe publishing in journals, that sort of thing, that, um, you know, they're, they're not something that should be dismissed or treated as a cultural artifact, but could be looked at as, uh, to an extent, uh, uh, an academic one as well. Well, I think well, one thing that's, that's interesting in that context is that if you look at the uh, biographies of, of uh, you know, important scientists in the 20th century, how many of them actually say, well, you know, I was turned on to a career in science by reading science fiction as a lad. Uh, so, so clearly it had a sort of imaginative input which... You know, shaped the, 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 their lives, and hence, in the sense that they then contributed to the development of science, shaped science it, itself. So, um, I think there's a, a, a serious uh, point to this. You know, the the, the, um, the speculations about what science could produce, in some cases, help to to shape where science goes. Uh, the, the, if there's a huge public um, Interest in saying the possibility of television, which seems to the ordinary man in the street in you know the 1920s, you know you've got radio and you've got cinema, isn't it dead easy to put them together and get television? Well, the answer is no, it isn't technically, but it seems uh, easy. But the fact that a lot of people in the uh, popular science literature. Uh, do see this as something that is coming, I think almost certainly helps to push that technology uh, and, and, and encourage people to, uh, like Logie Baird uh, on the side of the Atlantic and Lee de Forest on the other, to, to start you know, inventing and, and coming up with different possible ways of, of actually achieving the goal that's being sort of sketched out for them in, in popular science. Uh, writing and so there's a stimulus there it doesn't always work of course some of the ideas that they come up with you, you don't get like the idea of a personal aeroplane you know everybody's going to have a, a wee helicopter or in, in, their, in their garage instead of a car it, it, you know that, that was a very common speculation uh, and we talked about the jet pack uh, that everybody young kids in the 1960s wanted to go jetting off you know those are ideas which look sort of vaguely plausible but in fact for practical purposes, well, unlikely to be achieved because it's actually more difficult to fly a helicopter than, than to drive a car. Uh, and the thought of a city uh, filled with the skies, filled with everybody having their own helicopter, you know, say air traffic control would, would be a nightmare. So sometimes um, they're, they're 
the enthusiasts for a particular technology don't quite think through what the consequences would be. They can see the potential benefits, but they, they don't work out um, what the consequences might be in, in, in cases where those consequences might be such that it means you couldn't do the damn thing anyway. It might be technically feasible, but it wouldn't be practically feasible. As we see the evolution of science writing throughout the 20th century, um, has it gotten less idealistic? Are, are we losing more of the speculative element and moving more towards hard science? Um, uh, and when I say hard science, I mean specifically the smaller developments on things that are around us as opposed to the, the big ticket, you know, the vision of the future. Well, I think that... that um in the, the, the present situation, there is an awful lot of focus on um, applied science in the, the, the very sense of the, what is the very near future could bring, uh, commercialised science. You see uh, the, you know, the, the latest gadget for communication or the latest uh, drug for curing a, a disease or whatever. Uh, an awfully large amount of, a, of scientific attention is, is focused on what will yield a profit, hopefully in the fairly near future. Uh, and uh, scientists, uh, I think, are constantly struggling to uh, defend a role for blue sky science and uh, pointing out that if you don't have that, then sooner or later the, the, the little incremental things are going to run out of steam because you've got everything you can get out of a particular uh, line of development and you need new lines of development and you don't get those unless you have the blue, blue sky uh, research. Um, and, of course, an l- awful lot of... Uh, science writing uh, focuses on the, the, the very nitty gritty for obvious reasons. People want to know if you know, cancer can be cured or, or whatever, and that's understandable enough. I think there is still a fair bit of um, interest in the big big picture. I mean, we keep seeing movies about you know, space travel coming in. There's a new one just out now which I haven't seen. And you know, there's The Martian, what was it, last year, which I saw and I read the book. Uh, and, uh, and that's, of course, very, that's very hard science fiction. Uh, it, it, and people from NASA were involved in, in, in critiquing the, the, the plot and showing that things that were depicted in that were actually feasible in terms of the technology they are actually thinking about uh, to send people to Mars. And I think that's keeping something of the the big picture and the sort of longer distance um, future for scientific development alive. Uh, And so, you know, I I, I think we're seeing both. I hope we are uh, and hope that, 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 that all levels are being covered still. Although one is worried about the extent to which science is being controlled by interests which focus on the purely commercial. Uh, and I know a lot of people in universities are very concerned about that particular demand, yeah. And that was Niall Kitson speaking with Professor Philip Bowler from Queen's University in Belfast. Niall's still with us. Uh, we have our competition now, as we said, which is related with that interview. Uh, a Sony Xperia X up for grabs and our question is what? Our question is, which of these science fiction writers has a magazine named after them? Is it uh, A, Isaac Asimov, B, Arthur C. Clarke, or C, William Gibson? And uh, you can send your entries to competition at mediateam.ie. Okay. 
Uh, do you know what? That, 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 that question is a tricky one because it's not as obvious as, uh, as the stupid ones that you get on the Late Late Show. What colour is grass? Is it green? <laughs> Purple? <laughs> Give me the three options again. A, a guy with a science magazine named after him. The three options are A. Isaac Asimov. B. Arthur C. Clarke. C. William Gibson and there is an argument in there but I know the answer to the argument just in case anyone tries to get smart with me oh dear you are well prepped aren't you okay good stuff <laughs> email address again is uh, competition at mediateam.ie now remember you can get more and everything we talked about on the show including details of that competition uh, on our website along with all the latest tech news with hourly updates daily newsletters and more techcentral.ie is the website to visit and of course you get uh, your latest update every week with our tech radio show online and every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. That's it for this week. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Niall at Tech Central HQ, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com Tech Central.